0: When a beautiful young woman dies violently, reporters are quick to exploit the most out of the public's interest. During the first half of the 19th century, two murders involving pretty young women became media sensations. The first one actually changed the way such news was reported. This incident in Manhattan drew my interest when I was writing a history of forensic science, beating the devil's game. I was fascinated with how it shaped and changed news coverage of violent incidents that framed specific moral themes. Add the elements of privilege and beauty, and you have a media sensation. That's what it takes to sell papers. Mrs. Rosina Townsend ran a bordello on Thomas Street, not far from City Hall. On Sunday, April 10th, in 1836, she made her nightly rounds to check on the nine girls who entertained the likes of politicians, lawyers, and merchants. This night was different. She stopped and sniffed. Smoke! It was coming from upstairs. Mrs. Townsend saw a black plume drifting from the bedroom that belonged to 23 year old Helen Jewett. She raised an alarm. A night watchman ran to the scene to help extinguish the fire then they saw Helen. She lay in bed, apparently overcome. Her nightclothes were burnt. As they moved closer, it became clear that she was dead. Someone had bludgeoned her in the head with a sharp implement. One arm was raised over her head, the other lay over her chest. The fire had apparently been intentional." Mrs. Townsend told the watchman that she'd brought champagne to the room earlier that evening and had seen the back of the head of Frank Rivers, a young man who'd visited before. He'd come in that night wearing a long, dark cloak. Maria Stevens emerged from the room across the hall and reported that she'd heard a thump and a woman moaning. She'd also heard Helen's door open and slam shut. Peeking out, she'd seen a tall man wearing a cloak. An inspection of the backyard and garden, surrounded by a fence, revealed a blood-stained hatchet left on the ground, tied with twine with a ragged edge as if it had broken. On the other side of the fence was a man's dark cloak. Mrs. Townsend said that earlier that evening she'd found her back door standing ajar. One of the hookers said that Frank Rivers worked as a clerk for a dry-goods merchant on Maiden Lane. Citizen officers Dennis Brink and George Noble went to the address. They learned that Frank Rivers was a false name, and the person they wanted was Richard P. Robinson. He lived in a boarding home with James Two at 42 Day Street. Two opened the door when the officers knocked, and they saw a figure in bed. They woke him. It was Robinson. He insisted he'd been home in bed all night. Two confirmed this, although he wasn't clear on what time Robinson had come in. The officers ordered Robinson to get dressed so he could accompany them. He acknowledged that he owned a cloak like that found outside the bordello, but he didn't offer to show it to them. They saw a spot on his trousers that appeared to match the white paint on the fence behind the bordello, which further incriminated him. They took Robinson straight to the Thomas Street house, where seven more night patrol officers had gathered, along with the magistrate and coroner. They led Robinson to Helen's room, expecting a specific reaction upon seeing his alleged handiwork. However, he showed no signs of agitation or distress. As officers took the nineteen-year-old away, others examined the evidence—the cloak and hatchet from the yard broken twine on the hatchet that matched a broken piece found wound into a buttonhole of Robinson's clothing, and a man's handkerchief found beneath the pillow on Helen's charred bed. Oddly, Robinson knew about it, and boldly stated that because its initials did not match his, he'd never be convicted. Yet Mrs. Townsend insisted that only Robinson had been in Helen's room that night.